Hi, my name is Ben Blacker, and this is the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Listen, my dirty secret is I am the worst podcast listener on the face of me. Like, well, we, then, if we, you're the worst, yeah. then we're two and three. We, yeah. we talk about it all the time. We're like, we don't listen to podcasts. We're bad people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sometimes don't even listen to podcasts that I'm on. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Facebook.com slash the GBB podcast, Twitter at the GBB podcast, and right here in your headphones or car radio or wherever you're listening to us. <laughs> That's where we reside. In your car stereo? In, yes, we're, we are inside the speakers. We live here and we podcast from the speakers. Just, just bring snacks whenever you can. <laughs> so how are you doing today? Uh, well, and, and you? <laughs> I'm well. Good. This is a good, riveting good. podcast. This <laughs> I, know. I don't know what it's like in DC, Jamie, but up here, fall is just spectacular. Like the colors and the leaves and the tree. Like I don't know what yeah, what it's like down there, but but doesn't it only last for like three days and then you guys are buried under four <laughs> feet of snow? Good, it's a good month. We get a good oh, okay. Month. You know. uh, no, it's nice down here. We're we're sort of at the southern edge of where the the leaves get really pretty. Like mm-hmm. New England is very famous for it, but Virginia, like along the Blue Ridge, um, gets gorgeous um, foliage. Right. But it depends on the weather. So I have no idea what it's supposed to be like this year because it's still like mid eighties, low nineties yeah. out there well, right you, now. I mean, real here too, it's been ridiculous. Like you know, summer temperatures every day. I was tweeting earlier that I'm living in my flip flops as long as possible. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. Me too. I I despise shoes. I I wear them only as a last resort when I absolutely need to. And now this is going to be a great segue. I'm sure it's nothing like the weather in Nightvale. Oh, dun, 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 great segue. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and why you mentioned Nightvale? Because this week um, we are thrilled to be joined by Cecil Baldwin. Uh, if you know of Welcome to Nightvale, um, and if you listen to podcasts at all, you are probably aware of the show if you don't if you aren't already a rabid fan of it um they uh cecil is the pretty much the main character um in many episodes he's the only character he he is the voice of the community radio in night vale the town where time doesn't work and nothing is as it should be um he has uh we got off the phone and how did you describe his voice there justin i said his voice is very dreamy Dreamy. That was the word. Yes. And it's hard for me to argue with that. It is, <laughs> it is a dreamy, um, deep baritone um, voice that sort of doesn't lull you to sleep, but it like he could convince you of anything. You right. know, if he oh, says yeah. it in the right tone, like, oh, yeah, OK, I agree. I mm-hmm. believe you. <laughs> well, yeah, and he's the type like it, he was made to be talking like that's what he was born to do. You can tell just in his voice. Like some people have it. 
I know I know another guy that does too, but he's not into radio, but he should be. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and as he said in our interview, he was t- he's been told it many times by many. Oh, people. I'll bet with a voice like that, <laughs> how could you not be told that you should be doing something in radio or voiceover right. or acting? You know, and for listeners of this show, we just have to apologize that you listen to our voices every week. <laughs> we yeah. just can't compare. Yeah, no, there's no way. See, that's the thing is we've sort of set ourselves up to sound even more ridiculous because we've had so many professional, legendary voice actors on the show. Right, exactly. Well, we could yeah. do it. We could do it. I mean, I do it when I read books to my kids at night. You know, I do different voices for the characters and I do ridiculous voices. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'll read a book and I'll come up with a really awesome voice. I'm like, dude, I could totally do this. I could totally do it. Yeah. And then 10 minutes later, I'll have completely forgotten what that voice was. And I can't I can't do it again. <laughs> All so of like, a sudden oh, it has a British I accent. Yeah, I can't do it. <laughs> Accents are something I cannot do. Right. <laughs> so we have an interview with Cecil and it was just a great conversation just about his you know, how he got into uh, doing the podcast and how he was approached and his acting life before that. And it's just a, it's just a fun, fun in, uh, interview. And you get to hear behind, you know, when you hear his podcast, all you hear is his character, right? So this is going to give you a glimpse into the, the real man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> nice. Am I overselling this or what? <laughs> no, not at all. Cause it was a fascinating conversation. We really, it's, you know, it's we, we do a lot more than just skim the surface. You know, we mm-hmm. go deep with a lot of things, um, a lot of things that are related directly to the show and tangentially related to the show. So uh, and uh, he doesn't hold back. You know, he's a very open guy. So we mm-hmm. talk about a lot of personal things as well. So uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating conversation. Really great. All right. So we're going to play that for you right now. Hope you enjoy. Cecil, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I, I wanted to talk about your background a little bit. You come from a theater background, yeah? Yeah, I do. I uh, I did a lot of theater in college, and then I lived and worked in Washington, D.C. for a bit and did theater there. Uh, and that's kind of where I started uh, touring with uh, different productions and uh, kind of got the wanderlust uh, of living on the road. Uh, I did um, uh, National Players, which is the oldest running uh, classical touring company in the nation. And then I also did two tours with the Kennedy Center, uh, doing really well-produced, smart, funny children's theater for about two years. Um, And then I moved up to D.C. to, or excuse me, I moved up to New York to pursue doing uh, theater and film and TV and all that good stuff. When were you here in D.C.? I live just outside of D.C. When were you here? Oh, uh, I guess two, well, I moved there in 2001 and I was there like 2001, 2003, I think was when I left. Okay. And so you were part of the, uh, the, the young, the theater for young audiences there at Kennedy Center? Uh, yep. Yeah, I did that. Yeah. Those are great. We, I have, the kids are just sort of aging out of some of them and aging into some of the other performances that they have now. And they just, they do, they put on some really fantastic shows there. Yeah. It was so much fun. Yeah. Do you still perform? 
yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I try to do as much uh, performance as I can. Uh, with the touring of Night Vale, though, it's a little bit difficult to, to work in theater just because theater requires a lot of time and uh, you know, there's a rehearsal period and then a show period. And, uh, you know, Night Vale is to the point now where we're touring maybe four months out of the year. So it's, you know, when the when the stars align, it's really great. But it's sometimes yeah. to make schedules work. Um, so I've been doing a lot of like little things like voiceover work, uh, uh, web series, things like that, which require like slightly less lead up. Yeah. Uh, but it's great. Yeah. I've heard a lot of, um, you know, stand-up comedians and performers in theater, they, they talk about that, you know, like getting addicted to the audience and having that, you know, that immediate feedback and the thrill and the rush of being on stage in front of live people. Um, do you feel that? I mean, how does that dynamic affect a performance for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't say, I, wanna, I don't want to say I've been spoiled by Night Vale, but I kind of have a little bit just because the audiences are so giving and so excited to see the show. Uh, it's It's been a while since I've done a, uh, a performance that wasn't uh, Night Vale related. Um, but I'm getting ready to go to London and uh, perform in uh, sort of a late night, uh, you know, fringe style show called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind, uh, which is going to be like 50, 50 seats, small black box theater in North London. Um, and it'll definitely be very different than Night Vale, mm -hmm. but uh, rewarding in uh, the same kind of way. Yeah. Do, so how... When you when you first switch from doing like all on live performances to, you know, a podcast in relative you know, isolation like by, your, you know, I don't know if you're by yourself or not. Was that hard? Was that hard to switch doing those things? You know, actually, there was no like definite swap. Uh, okay. I, you know, we made Night Vale uh, for a good year or so while working on other projects and you know myself meg bashwinner jeffrey craner were all active company members of the neo futurist doing too much light makes the baby go blind here in new york and you know we continue to do these live performances and um and and i think that style of performance here in New York really informed the the performance and the writing on Night Vale. Um, so yeah, definitely, I, I record by myself in my apartment. It's you know, it's very, it's not lonely, but it's definitely very isolated. Uh, you know, where like I kind of have to shut down all the air conditioning and close all the windows to make sure there's no, you know, there's no uh, audio bleed from outside. Um, but it's just a different kind of performance. And and I found it was just as rewarding. Um, it's just it kind of exercises a different muscle, you know, creative muscle uh, in your brain. Yeah. Uh, when when you think about like a live performance of Night Vale versus theater, like a live theater performance are those different muscles or do you find that it's a lot of overlap oh definitely um you know it's it's so funny how you know when i look back at my career and i i, I did a play maybe like th two or three years ago uh that was very much more like a traditional play where you know all the actors were in costumes and we we're backstage you know the set and the lights and the, like the whole you know what we would think of as a play um and and I turned to one of my my co-stars and I was like, wow, I realized just how long it's been mm -hmm. since I played a part that wasn't called Cecil um, <laughs> and, and just how strange that was. And, you know, like when I'm waiting backstage at Night Vale, there's um, 
you know, there's a very like you try to be as open as possible and you know the script and you know where the show is going to go. But you try to it's it's a little more like stand up comedy in that you're kind of putting yourself out there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no in the Night Vale shows. There's no there's no sets. There's no pretense of, you know, the third or the fourth wall. You know, it's like I'm here. You're here. Let's all acknowledge that. Um and and doing this other show, you know, with all these other actors, I was like, wow, this is it. I, I you know, I was so nervous because it had been, you know, like five or six years since I'd done a production where, <clears throat> you know, I was sort of waiting to go on and play a part uh, that was not Cecil. It was not, yeah, you or some other guy named Cecil. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it, but. You know, you kind of you like I mean, like any performer will tell you, you kind of take that nervous energy and and that's kind of what drives you. Um, and it's it's like a rush. You know, you, you get a real amazing connection and uh, um, it, it just kind of boosts you and, and sort of carries you onto the stage and carries you through the performance. Yeah. How are you first approached about the project? Like, how did you come on board? Um, well, I was like I said, I was working with the uh, the New York Neo Futurists, and uh, uh, Joseph Fink was a uh, he was a kind of a regular in the audience there. He had volunteered, and I had met him doing a workshop with the Neos, sort of a writing and performing workshop. Um, and so, you know, I just saw his face, and I kind of saw him around uh, a lot. And um, you know, I I did a monologue that I wrote about trying to make it in New York City as a voiceover actor and about how, you know, people tell me that, you know, I have this wonderful radio voice and I should be on the radio and I should mm. do commercials. And, and and I wholeheartedly agreed. Uh, <laughs> Good for but, you. You know, but up to that point, no one had ever really cast me in anything. And, you know, it, like like any job in the performing arts, there's you know, a hundred people trying to find, you know, trying to compete for one job. Uh, So I just wrote all this into a monologue and it ended with me uh, uh, making a gift to a random audience member every night where I would record their outgoing voicemail message. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and my philosophy was, you know, if no one's going to pay me for this sort of radio voice, then I might as well give it away for free. Yeah. Uh, And kind of gift it out into the the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Joseph Fink saw that that show and approached me and said, Hey, I've been working on uh, a podcast. Um, I have a, you know, like the first episode, would you be interested in recording it? And, you know, we met at a coffee shop and he kind of explained it to me and he gave me a microphone or he lent me a microphone. And, um, you know, I went home and recorded the pilot episode of Welcome to Night Vale. And, you know, what you hear on iTunes is exactly that. Like we really, you know, we, I recorded it and I sent it back to Joseph and, you know, returned his microphone to him. And, um, and he, we kind of said, okay, let's, let's continue to make this. Uh, and, and it's, we've honestly, I've kind of kept that, uh, that way of working pretty much the same ever since. So what were were your initial thoughts on it? Were you on board right away or were you, did you, did you understand what he was trying to do with Night Vale? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, uh, I mean, some of my big influences uh, have been David Lynch and, you know, uh, Cronenberg and Carpenter. And so I kind of I love the sort of horror film world. Uh, So I definitely got a lot of the uh, the creepiness of it. Um, And then I don't, you know, necessarily I'm not an NPR junkie, (laughs) but 
you know, I've definitely listened to my fair share of NPR or public radio or talk radio. Mm-hmm. So I understood the the sort of the trope, the style of what he was going for. I understand, you know, the sort of community radio, you know, like soft talking, everything is fine kind of radio host. Uh, and, you know, juxtaposed in a world where nothing is fine and everything is out to kill you. Uh, and and also having worked with Joseph and Jeffrey, uh, especially with the neo-futurists, I understood their use of language and I understood their sense of humor. So I think if they had had like an open casting call where they're like, I just want an actor to play this, you know, community radio host who was a total stranger, they may not have been able to pick up on some of the the subtle nuances of their sense of humor. Right. Um, I think I was really blessed in that way because I had worked with Jeffrey, uh, especially Jeffrey Craner uh, in with the Neos. I had worked on his plays and he had worked on mine. And so we, we, we worked with a language that was understood. Um, and then, you know, the way the neo-futurist work is, you know, the, the writer is kind of the auteur. They write a show or they write a play, they direct it, they cast it, um, and they kind of trust the actors to fill that play with themselves. Um, and, and I think working with Joseph and Jeffrey on Night Vale has been very similar. I don't have a director. I don't have a producer or an audio engineer. It's just kind of me. Um, and I just record and re-record and re-record and re-record <laughs> until... Uh, you know, the, I, I get to a place where I think, you know, technically it sounds good, but also artistically, it's something that I find interesting and that, uh, you know, I, I feel like is worth putting out into the world. Um, and we've kind of kept that uh, that sense of working. You know, now it's we're on episode 90 something. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting. You know, you talk about the beginnings of it and how it's just started sort of at this this idea he just casually pitched to you and you you brought the script back to your apartment and you just recorded it sort of on a whim, you know, just see, let's see how this goes. How did you guys feel like once the show really just sort of took off and it was like, oh, we have the most downloaded podcast on iTunes, like for the country? Yeah, I mean, it's it was absolute disbelief. Yeah. Uh, I remember I was with Meg Bashwinner. We were doing a gig uh, for the Neos and you know, I can't remember who, like somehow like Meg got an email from Joseph being like, Hey, you need to check out iTunes right now. <laughs> you know, and we were like number 10 yeah. you know? and, and we're like, Oh my gosh, we were people other than our family and friends are listening to this show. And then over the course of that month, we just watched it climb and climb and climb to the point where, you know, I think we were, you know, we kind of pulled ahead of this American life and we had no clue what was happening or, uh, or how it had happened. Yeah. Um, it was, I mean, I, I guess that's the thing is that when you, you know, when you work in, you know, sort of what I call off, off Broadway theater, you know, you, you try to just work on as many projects as you can and you hope that one of them has legs and will go somewhere. And, you know, I think all of us were kind of shocked and, and delighted that, you know, this one project seemed to be the one thing that sort of picked up steam. Yeah. Did that popularity change the show at all, do you think? Um, I, I don't know if it changed the show. It definitely changed a lot of the world around the show. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I do think that Night Vale, you know, it, it's an ongoing uh, episodic podcast. So it's going to have it's going to go through different phases where, you know, it, it's it's impossible to 
always be creepy or always be funny or always be, uh, you know, sort of uh, literary. Um, you know, it goes through through different phases. But I think what changed was the the world around it in that, you know, we started uh, realizing that, wow, we're all performance theater based. Let's do more live performances. Mm-hmm. And then the live shows became you know, a whole other source of, uh, of connecting with fans. Um, you know, I mean, it, it made it a lot easier to find other people to work on the show with us. It made it a lot easier to meet other people in the podcasting industry, you know, who were interested in sitting down and talking about, um, you know, Night Vale, but also podcasting in general and, you know, comedy and, you know, all these other offshoots that, you know, are contained within Night Vale. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that's been like really amazing. Um, you know, it de- and definitely it's it's the chance to just work on this project, you know, every month and kind of get to find new and different ways to approach it. Yeah. How much, I mean, when you're given a script, how much direction do you get from Jeffrey and Joseph? Are there, are there notes and directions in the script for no, how you're supposed to like, play? I think, like, I think the one of the only, I mean, there's some very basic stage directions, like he eats a burrito or, <laughs> you know, uh, a door slam or things yeah. like that, which are very, you know, like perfunctory. Um, but when it comes to actual performance notes, there's really none at all. I, I think like early on, <clears throat> Jeffrey may have written, there was like a new character on the show and Jeffrey wrote a side note saying, hey, it'd be really funny if she had a terrible Boston accent. And I don't know why. I think it was because he was like visiting relatives or friends in Boston and just had that on his mind. Yeah. Um, But that was it. I think that's really the only performance note that's ever come in the script. Um, Mostly it's a very hands off project and they kind of let me interpret uh, the scripts as I see fit. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, especially as an actor, you don't get that very much, you know, the the chance to sort of mold not just your character, but mold how the entire thing is going to be produced in in sound to the listener or the the audience. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's really it's I mean, it's a gift. And it's also uh, it can be a little bit nerve wracking at the same time, because like most actors, uh, you know, we kind of create crave feedback. You know, if you work on a play, if you work on a film, there's a director there to kind of be your outside eye and to say, okay, in that last take or that last scene you did, uh, try this, 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 and this. And and it gives you a sounding board to, to kind of let you know how you're doing and a sort of a compass to navigate your way through the material. Um, I mean, there's definitely plenty, plenty of episodes where I've recorded the whole thing and I've hit send to send it back to Joseph to to produce it and master and st- stitch it all together with music. And, you know, an hour later, I'll, you know, have my fingers on the keyboard, you know, craving some sort of feedback. Like, have you listened to it yet? Have you listened? Yeah. Is it good? Did you like this? I can do it different. I swear I could do I could do a totally different you know version of this. Um, but I've kind of just gotten used to, uh, you know, kind of listening to my inner voice and finding ways of making the material sing and find it, find ways of making it interesting and, and just kind of trusting that, you know, my gut instinct is the best way to go. Yeah. Well, that's got to make the live shows then sort of even more fulfilling because you do get that immediate feedback. You know, you do get the fans coming up to you afterwards saying like, oh, that was amazing or whatever yeah. they're going to say. Yeah. And people pick out, you know, like 
Uh, and, you know, we I, we definitely have a little bit of a rehearsal period for the live shows uh, in which, you know, because a lot of times these scripts are brand new, um, you know, when we when we start these tours. And so we try to rehearse them and Joseph and Jeffrey will listen to an initial read and they'll kind of go off and like, you know, like, uh, you know, work on some some parts of the script. And I mean, it's it's a rehearsal process, you know, so that way, by the time we get to our first show, of the new script, uh, there, there's a little bit of polish to it, you know. Um, and then even even a week or two into the run, we'll still be tweaking uh, lines and moments, and you know. And then even then, months later, you know, when we have guest stars come in, like there are definite moments where, you know, in the initial run, it uh, like an acting scene, a scene maybe something. And then, you know, like a month later, you know, like working with Symphony Sanders or Hal Lublin, you know, will completely find new ways to, you know, inject character and tempo and pace and, you know, all those good things that actors kind yeah. of, you know, work with. Um, because we are working without a director uh, using the audience as our sounding board. So we're like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if dot, 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 and, you know, let's try it and see how it goes. And if it's great, we'll keep it. And if it falls on its face, then we're like, we'll never, ever do that again. <laughs> um, so so there's definitely like it, it's kind of the best of live theater. It's it's almost like vaudeville um, in that, you know, we're the, the show is not frozen in amber you know, we don't have a stage manager going, well, you said that line differently last night right. than you did tonight, which is how a lot of, you know, big equity theater works. Um, it really kind of puts, you know, the 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 creative um, ownership in the performers. And, you know, of course, Joseph and Jeffrey are on tour with us and they, you know, they hear the show and I they also they're performing in the show. And we're also kind of working on, you know, uh, uh, finding new and interesting ways to make the show live and breathe. Yeah, amazing. Um, the, your character, was he originally conceived as being gay or was that something that Jeffrey and Joseph sort of had in mind from the outset? I don't think so. I, I think if you go back and listen to some of the initial episodes, um, you know, the sort of relationship with Carlos the scientist was very different. Uh, I think Carlos was originally the the sort of foil for Night Vale. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was the outsider, log logistical brain uh, scientist who just kind of runs around Night Vale going, clocks don't work here. Why don't clocks work? Why, what is this weird place? Um, and, and I think there was a couple of lines that, you know, just, you know, in his character description that was, you know, Carlos with the perfect hair and perfect teeth. And uh, and again, like sort of a testament to to working without a director, I picked up on that and thought, well, I, you know, working from a place of, OK, if I met a scientist who was new in town in this very small community and he had perfect hair and perfect teeth and was smart and I would certainly maybe have a crush on him. And so I kind of, you know, without kind of putting my finger on it, just kind of nudge the character in that direction. And I think Joseph and Jeffrey picked up on that in the performance and then started writing to that relationship. Yeah. Um, and it just evolved over time. Yeah. I, I think it's ironic um, that that Cecil Carlos relationship is probably the most normal thing in Night Vale. 
Of course. Um, and I feel like um, that relationship and those characters, they, they could so easily have been portrayed so very differently if it was on TV or if it was, oh, sure. you know, a sitcom or, a, you know, an hour long drama or however it would be presented. Um, how important was it for you or for to everybody else involved to sort of have that relationship that's so critical to this main character, um, you know, to, 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 to have that in the show, but not not shine a spotlight on it, not constantly call attention to it. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, if, if you look at uh, Joseph and Jeffrey both have, you know, like long term, you know, partners and, you know, as the sort of dating period wore off for Cecil and Carlos, I think, you know, I, I think we all have this really kind of underlying um, love of the world of Night Vale. Uh, and we want it to kind of reflect the world that we all live in in a very honest and real way. And and it's one of those things where, you know, gay people have long-term relationships. Gay people, you know, for a while, Carlos was, you know, away. And, like, being in a long-distance relationship is a very real thing. And it's it's one of those things where if it was on TV, if it was on, you know, like a, a movie that, you know, had millions and millions of dollars pumped into it, you know, and you have producers and, you know, sponsors and all this, I, I'm sure they would have been like, this is not interesting. This is boring. Mm -hmm. This is not a, an exciting way to portray a gay relationship. Um, and it probably would have gotten the axe. But because we are kind of beholden only to ourselves and to our sort of own moral compasses, you know, we're like, yeah, this is a real thing that happens. People meet, they fall in love, they get into a relationship, and then life happens. You know, sometimes you have to have really difficult conversations with your partner about taking a job out of town or, you know, whatever it whatever else it may be. Um, and, and that's a real thing. And, and I think portraying a gay relationship with that in mind, that a gay relationship is just as exciting and just as boring as every other relationship <laughs> out there. It, it's very refreshing to a lot mm -hmm. of people. You know, um, and I, you know, it's 2016 and, and I think we're all coming to terms with the fact that, you know, gay relationships are just like any other um, and and getting a chance for a lot of our listeners, especially our younger listeners, you know, who may be high school age or college age and haven't quite gotten to that point in their lives where they realize just how soul crushingly boring life can be. Um, you know, it's, it's really, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's good for them to see gay relationships, uh, uh, that are portrayed in a very natural way. Um, you know, and, and that's something that, uh, you know, kind of gives them something to look forward to as they get older and as they go out into the world and kind of meet people and have to, you know, kind of navigate their way through uh, uh, love and dating and, you know, all that sort of business. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I just think it's really it's really great to get to work on a show that kind of like holds a mirror up to the world Um and does so in a way in like sort of a sci-fi horror uh, uh, setting, you know, in a way that allows us to, um, I guess, uh, show these relationships uh, in a way that is almost more normal 
than if it was a, you know, sort of a sitcom or a drama, you know, in which I'm sure people would be like, nothing ever happens. Like, mm -hmm. why, why is there no conflict? You know, the conflict comes from the sort of crazy world of Night Vale, and it allows the Cecil Carlos relationship to be, you know, very normal and very stable. Exactly. Um, you recently came out with your HIV status, and if, if it's not you know, overstepping. I was just wondering why now? Like, why did you choose now to, to sort of go public with that? I mean, it's something that I've been thinking about for a while. I, I mean, I've been HIV positive for 10 years almost. And, you know, all my, like a lot of my friends knew, my family knew. I, I told them when I first found out just because I wanted them to, to make, you know, to kind of reassure them that everything is okay. Um, I think a lot of attitudes about HIV have been changing a little bit in the last uh, few years just because uh, medicine and technology and science has kind of caught up a little bit and has made it uh, um, a more manageable thing. And and it's and, and I find it's we're at a period where um, it's not just immediately affecting the people who have HIV, but it's also affecting the people around them. And also people who, you know, may not know, quote unquote, someone who's HIV positive. And, and, and I think it's, there've been certain points in my life where I've met people and I've had to kind of, for whatever reason, tell them that I was HIV positive. And, you know, I always kind of did it with this sense of, you know, white knuckled, oh my God, uh, how is this going to be received? Um, you know, kind of terror. And, you know, sometimes it's been good and sometimes it's been not good. Um, but I find that you know, with the little bit of notoriety that I have been given by Night Vale, um, you know, being a podcast actor, you know, in the grand scheme of things is absolutely nothing. But with the <laughs> tiny little bit of notoriety that I have, you know, I, I, I think it's it's important to kind of stand up and say, you know, hey, you may not think that, you know, someone who's HIV positive, but now you do. You know, or maybe you do and you didn't know it because that person in your life is just as terrified as I am to stand up and sort of make this, uh, uh, you know, kind of make this pronouncement. Um, I mean, I, I went round and round and round about it in my in my brain and, you know, with my close friends and talking to friends and people in the industry and talking to people in media. And, you know, I got all the information that I could about what it would mean to kind of uh, tell people in a public forum, um, you know, because there it's a medical thing. It's not mm -hmm. something that, you know, it, it's, it's something very personal. And, you know, like a part of me is still like, well, it's between me and whoever I'm sleeping with. Those are really the only important people that need right. to know. Right. Um, but I think, you know, we're, we are kind of coming to a point where, you know, they're, you know, the only way that we're going to stop the, sort of the virus and people stopping people from, you know, newly becoming infected is to educate them. And the only way to educate people is, you know, to kind of put a face and uh, a voice to, you know, the the millions of people that do have HIV that are living with it, that are making it work, um, that are, you know, kind of surviving and, you know, thriving um, until one day we find a cure, until one day, you know, everyone has access to, you know, free or, you know, affordable uh, health care in order to treat, you know, newly. I mean, it's it's 
it's a long, it's a long, long road. But I think there was a part of me that said, okay, you've got to kind of bite the bullet, you know, and, and just stand up and say, Hey, I'm HIV positive. I'm doing all right. I've made some, you know, like my life isn't perfect. I don't want to be a role model. I don't want anybody to emulate themselves after me, but just know that we are out there and, you know, we are deserving of, you know, kind of love and respect and, you know, just like everybody else. Sure. It's, I mean, you, you mentioned that there has been a, a shift in how people perceive it and, and the, in recent years and AIDS and HIV is not something that you hear about on a daily basis anymore. Mm-hmm. Certainly not like yep. you did in the eighties or the early nineties. Yep. Um, so, I mean, as part of that education, you know, that you were talking about, do you think, though, that that danger of us not hearing about it so much, um, is there a danger of people just thinking that it's no longer an issue? I think there's a there was a bit of that. You know, it, it seemed like, you know, after the 90s and after, you know, especially the gay community, um, you know, kind of put the pieces, was slowly starting to put the pieces together after the, the AIDS crisis of the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s. Um, you know, like I, I think the the focus shifted onto a lot of gay marriage, onto you know, uh, sort of like other other issues in the LGBT sort of pantheon. Um, and now I, I find because the medicine has kind of caught up um, a little bit, it's it, it has kind of come back into the spotlight. And it's you know, and especially in the dating world, as a single gay man, you know, it it, it definitely comes up more often. Um, and but I think that it's one of those things where uh, the best way to uh, kind of get the word out there is to kind of cross those borders into the straight world and be like, look, we're still here, we're still fighting for, you know, this cause, um, as well as you know all the other all you the know other causes that you know that are kind of important. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's just different. Uh, you know the the movement has kind of shifted. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, there are, you know, like there's, and, and in a lot of ways, uh, what has shifted is, you know, there's a lot of, uh, um, there's a lot more, uh, infections of people of color and people who are, um, you know, who need help, uh, getting access to healthcare, to affordable healthcare, things like that. And so in my mind, we're having to kind of look, you know, us, I, I speak as like us as gay, cisgendered, mm-hmm. white men are having to look at ourselves and be like, OK, we are the ones who now need to like, you know, like cross the bridge and and find the people in our community that need the most uh, support and, and kind of like reaching across the aisle and, and, you know, finding that intersectionality where we can all get some good done, not just for a certain portion of the LGBT community. Yeah. And what I mean, what has the reception been like, either from colleagues who may not have known or from the fans of the show? I mean, honestly, it's it's very new. I'm still I'm I'm still trying to, like, wrap my brain around it, trying to figure out where I'm at with this whole thing. Um, You know, and it'll be it's it's a process like it's you know, like anything else. you, You learn and you make mistakes and you have moments of true revelation. And then, you know, you then you have a lot of boring periods in between. Uh. But I, I think, you know, one of the one of the one of the best moments that I had after kind of coming out as HIV positive was I went to a Comic-Con here in New York and a guy came up to me and he said, you know, that thing on that video where you said, uh, don't call me dirty because I'm HIV positive. I say that every day. Mm. And this guy just had this like 
like we just had this bond and there, there was no need to, for him to say thank you. There was no, you know, there was no like, oh my God, thank you so much. You saved my life. It was just like, it was almost like a casual head nod, you know, just like, I see you, I get you. And we took a selfie together. And I was like that, like that one person was the person that I made that video for, you know, he was the person who I was just like, we're out there, you know, like other, you like, you'd be able to recognize other people in the community. Just be like, I get you, man. I get you. Yeah. And that to me was like, I don't know, that kept me going like on cloud nine for like the next week. Yeah, no, I don't doubt it. Um, I mean, I also think like you were saying, you know, with Night Vale and the portrayal of your character and how it how it, it normalizes what, you know, too many people think that is still not normal. So it normalizes this this relationship for a lot of people and it, and it brings it into the mainstream. I think also, you know, just casual conversations, you know, like what you're having sure. about about your situation and about the, the thousands of other people out there who are also HIV positive, yeah. who are also struggling, you know, in their own mind, but whether they want to share that information or not. I think that's a it's a it's such an important step to, quote unquote, normalize it for yeah. everybody else. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for me, I, I, I don't know. I've never been comfortable with the the sort of activist role model uh, archetype, you know, like when yeah. I was in college, I, you know, I, art was always my activism, you know, as opposed to going to a meeting and, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of being the sort of political activist, like I would dabble in it, but it was, ne I never felt comfortable there. You know, um, my, my senior thesis project in college was a one man show about being gay. And I performed it for sort of freshman week you know, when all the freshmen come in and all their parents are there. Um, and it was on the sort of schedule of things to do at the university. And to me, that was much more comfortable, um, was, you know, performing a, a piece of art that people could come to gay, straight, whoever, uh, with their parents and, and take away what they needed to take away from it, whether it was seeing someone like them on stage, whether it was seeing someone who they had only heard about on TV, whether it was, you know, uh, whether it was asking more questions than that had answers. And, and art as activism has always been much more comfortable for me. And, and I think I'm at a crossroads in my career where I'm looking for different and new ways, not to be an activist, but to be an artist yeah. who also includes activism in their art. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that being said, let's shift back to the art aspect a, a little sure. bit. Um, podcasts, I mean, you're, you're, you're in a podcast, we're podcasters. They're a very strange medium, you know, sure. they're, and they're still very new and people are experimenting and trying to figure out what it is that they want to do. Um, but especially shows like, like Welcome to Night Vale or The Thrilling Adventure Hour, mm -hmm. they're these, these scripted and incredibly creative shows. Um, and they really are charting new ground, um, you have actually been involved in both of them. So, I mean, I'm wondering, though, like from your perspective, having been involved in them and knowing sort of what goes into them, do you listen to any? You know, listen, my dirty secret is I am the worst podcast listener on the face of the like, well, we then, if we, you're the worst, yeah. then we're two and three. We, we <laughs> talk about it all the time. We're like, we don't listen to podcasts. We're bad people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I sometimes don't even listen to podcasts that I'm on. <laughs> uh, no, I really, I try. I, it's so funny. I, you know, uh, honestly, when I, when I had a commute to work, 
I listen to way more podcasts. You know, I, I used to have like a 45 minutes each way commute and I would either read a book or I would listen to a podcast or, you know, the radio or something like that. Um, and, and, and I would kind of be a little bit more in the loop. Um, but now because I kind of work from home, there's a million other things to distract me. And I've always been much more of a movie mm -hmm. cinephile. Uh, uh, so I just, I don't know, there's something about the medium that I respect and love, but it's not my first choice. Yeah. Um, I I, I think totally understand. <laughs> I love meeting people that are kind of pushing the boundaries of what podcasting is. And, you know, when I do meet those people, I'll try and go and listen to a little bit of their podcast just to get an idea of what they're working on. But I, I'm I'm rarely one of those people who sits in front of the computer and hits waits to hit refresh when a new episode comes out. Yeah. Um, you know, that both of those shows I mentioned, you know, Night Vale and Thrilling Adventure, they they're, they're basically they're very different shows, but they're both pulling that old time radio conceit and they're pulling sure. it into the modern era. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from your perspective, why do you think people have glommed onto that format? Like why, why have they really embraced it and, and become such cult fans of it? Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, the wonderful thing about radio is that the, like there are no, there are no limits, you know, with, within the sandbox of, okay, once you take away the visual aspect and you only have audio, there are no limits as to what you can do. Like I, uh, like I love a lot of the the sort of the sci-fi uh, 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 podcasts that are out there. Like Our Fair City was one that I was on. You know, uh, there's a new one. Big Data is another one that's coming out. You know, that have these sort of sci-fi bent because literally all you need is a computer and a microphone and a cast of talented actors and talented writers, and you can build mm -hmm. worlds that you know would take billions of dollars in CGI to create if you were doing it on TV or on film. And really, you can just do that with imagination. And you kind of put that world into the audience's uh, brain and you let them build the world for themselves. Um, I mean, it, it, it really is like, I, I've said this before, it's kind of like the Wild West. You know, it's like the gold rush in the podcast world in that, you know, a couple of podcasts have been like, wait, I think I found gold out here. And now a lot of people are kind of running out to to kind of find to stake their claim in, you know, in that world, because it is like really all you need is a microphone and uh, mm -hmm. you know, a, a dedication to do the thing and, you know, and and a kind of a love for it. You know, like I remember I was at uh, L.A. Podfest uh, two years ago, and I remember this one woman stood up uh, at a panel and she's like, I'm really interested in, like, in making a podcast about gluten free cooking. And I was like, yes, if that is something that you are really passionate about and you're, you know, kind of charming and funny and you're willing to kind of devote yourself to it. Yeah, do it exactly. absolutely like because if i mean it really is like if you make it there will be an audience for it you just yeah. have to be dedicated enough to continue to make it and hope that your audience catches up to you That's which i think is the, the success story of night vale we just we are you know of the sort of off off broadway theater scene where we're like if five people show up it's yeah. a success yeah. you know if 500 people show up then we never could have anticipated it uh, and you just have to kind of keep making it, even when, you know, your day job sucks 
And even when, you know, you have a million other things that probably are going to make you money, but there's this free thing that you have kind of poured your heart and soul into. Uh, and, and, you know, hopefully someday, maybe, you know, five people, 10 people also discover it. And they're like, oh my God, I love this thing just as much as the creators do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's it. It's that, I mean, it's, it's opening up a whole new world of creativity, both in sort of a fictional side, like Night Vale, like Thrilling Adventure Hour, and then nonfiction, you know, people who are, you know, bringing different voices and different stories out into the world. And it's really expanding people's worldview of the place that you already live. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing about podcast. I mean, the, the barrier to entry is so low. Mm -hmm. um, but like you were saying, it's dedication. You know, it's I mean, there's so many people who who maybe have the passion for what it is they want to mm -hmm. talk about or what they want to do, but they just don't have the dedication to keep it going. Right. And what you said is it's it's right on target. I mean, if if you're making the show for those five people who will eventually find you, that's yeah. those are the type of people who are going to keep the show going. You yes. don't start off making a show for a million people. No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's so funny, like, you know, you're talking about, you know, kind of Night Vale in the early days when yeah. we first started to get popular. You know, and a lot of people asked us, what is your demographic? How do you write to your demographic? And we're like, we don't. <laughs> I think that's the secret. Um, you, you know, uh, especially young people these days are so media savvy mm -hmm. and and, you know, like people sort of, you know, age 13 to, you know, 30, I, I think, you know, have kind of grown up with the Internet and with Twitter and with instant feedback on uh, uh, whatever TV show or podcast or whatever that they listen to. Um, they're very aware when they are being uh, 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 preached to or, yeah. you know, when something is being crafted just to get to elicit a response, you know, I mean, you know, there's like TV tropes, you know, the, 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 the website TV tropes right. is entirely devoted to that, you right. know? Uh, and, and I think the best way to avoid that trap is make the thing that you find interesting and just continue to do that. And if people have opinions, that's great, but you know, kind of stay true to your own artistic choice, you know, like you, you gotta kind of stay the course you know, regardless of what people say on either side of you. Yeah, uh, such great advice. Have Have you seen a lot of uh, Night Vale cosplay? Oh, I've seen I've seen quite a bit of Night Vale yeah. cosplay in my day. Yes, I have. <laughs> Any that uh, are sort of burned in the memory? Oh man, I mean, it, it's so funny. Like, you know, there's always a continuum of people who are just like costumes that are so impressive. Like I remember there, there was somebody at the Sydney Australia show who had like stilts and like six foot wingspan. And like they were cosplaying as Erica the angel. And like their, I think their mom was like helping them assemble it and disassemble it for <laughs> when they went in and out of the theater. And it was so impressive. Um, I've also seen people like, uh, Oh, man, I can't even remember where we were, but like they had come from like the Hebrides in Scotland, like as far north as you can go yeah. in Scotland. But their Eternal Scout cosplay was on point. Like it was like they had made all the badges and they had this like really amazing like Scottish tweed kind of look to it. It was almost like Victorian. <laughs> like it was just great. So, I mean, so you definitely, and it wasn't one of those things where it, 
it wasn't a showstopper. Like they could ride the subway, they could ride the bus and no one would kind of look twice at them. They'd think, oh, there's some weird Boy Scouts or whatever. Um, but when you looked close up, it was like the details were so amazing. And I think everybody, like we were out signing autographs and we were all like, oh my God, your costume is amazing. Um, <laughs> You know, and it's just, it's always a lot of fun. And I think, you know, I love it when people come to the shows dressed as their favorite character. I mean, when I was 15, 16 years old, I would go every Halloween to watch uh, a Rocky Horror Picture Show at the University of Tennessee campus student union. And, you know, my friends and I would sort of dress up and go, and it was always a big event. And, and I think I am so honored to kind of live in that, uh, sort of same tradition as Rocky Horror uh, in, in the world of Night Vale. Um, I mean, it's surreal and weird, don't get me wrong, but, uh, but it's definitely a really amazing, amazing thing. That is amazing. And last question, and we'll let you go. Mm. What is in the dog park? What is in the dog park? Uh, I mean, I like to think that the dog park is a portal, uh, uh, I have no idea to where I have no idea to what, um, but I, I, I'm trying to think of like a, like a, something that exists in media. Um, like in my mind, the dog park looks a little bit like, uh, was it Stargate? You remember yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a little bit like that. I have no <laughs> idea what's on the other side, but there's like hooded figures kind of floating around it. It's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of, you know, the uh, the sort of Harry Potter uh, uh, sort of gateway into the shadow world, that sort of thing. Or, or maybe the other side is just puppies. It might be <laughs> really amazing. Uh, Cecil, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolutely amazing. It's such, a, such so a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Well, that's it for this week on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. And while we were interviewing Cecil about uh, coming out as HIV positive, um, I, I just had to think about that. And I can't even imagine, you know, telling your family and friends is one thing, right? And the, But coming out publicly about it and, mm -hmm. you know, expressing what you're going through to the public and your fans, that must have took a lot of courage. And, yeah. you know, that, I just, I'm amazed by that. Like he said, I mean, he's known for 10 years, so you know, he, he hasn't been, you know, like he said, as much fame as he has, he hasn't had that for 10 right. years. You know, the show has been around for, what, three or four years, I think, at this point. Um, but still, it's one of, it was for a time, it was the most popular podcast in mm -hmm. the country, and it's still one of the most popular. It's, it's incredibly popular. It has a cult following. Um, and so, you know, people who know him love him and people who know the show love the show primarily because of him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I would imagine that it was a very difficult decision to, to, to come out um, with information like that, you know, when especially when you don't need to, you know. Right. But but like he was saying, it's like he may not have needed to to justify anything or to mm -hmm. to to to. That, that that's information that you know really only a couple people need to know especially not just the random listeners who you right. know, download the show every couple weeks um but you know like he's saying he's in a unique position to really make some difference and to and to educate people and i admire that a lot yeah me too that's, that's fantastic and if you haven't ever checked out uh his podcast you need to go to itunes right now and find it um, I was just listening to a little bit of it on you. It's even on YouTube. I'm not sure if that's the official one, but <laughs> maybe I should find that out. Um, but 
but all of the podcasts are there. And the beautiful thing about podcasts is if you haven't been involved from the beginning, you can go back and do that easily and not yeah. miss a step. You can just download it right from the start. And I'll be honest, I did not listen to Night Vale. I've known about it for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. I did not listen to it from the beginning. And I relatively recently came to it. And I, you know, started at the beginning because that's it's the beauty is yeah. you could just go back to episode one and start there and they live forever. So, yeah, I started through, from the beginning and just kind of burned through them. And, you know, they're they're about a half an hour long each. Um and uh, you'll find yourself just kind of listening to one after another after another. So they're very binge worthy. Right. And of course, do it after you listen to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Of course. We should always be first. <laughs> first I'm in just, your hearts, at least. I'm just teasing. Go listen to them. <laughs> 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 All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming back week after week. If this is your first time, why don't you consider hitting that subscribe button so you can come back week after week? Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be awesome. You'd be part because- of the family. Part of the family, the great big beautiful family, and we we uh, we bring all kinds. Of, we we do our best to sort of um, cast as wide a net as possible. We mm-hmm. have actors, we have directors, we have authors, we have artists. Um, we have um, I don't know, you name it. Like Justin, you said one time we haven't had a crossing guard, and that really got me thinking. I feel like we should. <laughs> um, but you know, if 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 somebody contributes. Um, creatively to popular culture and right. you know create something that we like or that we enjoy uh it's fair game and so you know we have them on we have a conversation and we you know sort of see what makes them tick exactly and you mentioned crossing guard the crossing guard <laughs> at my daughter's school actually won best crossing guard in canada award last year so maybe we should get her no yes i'm not kidding we'll have to get best her. crossing guard yeah, in it, canada. It's, it's actually an award and she won so it. what are the like what are the the like how are they judged i have no idea <laughs> like how many kids got hit on their watch or yeah, something how like, many i don't know how many cars she gave dirty looks to <laughs> i don't know <laughs> that's fascinating hey look we could have an episode i'll invite her over we'll set it up you totally should and, you know, <laughs> have Hannah interview her. That would yes, be amazing. Let's do it. We, right. Let's do it. Right. Tune in. Tune in next time for the next riveting time. interview when, when a seven year old talks to a crossing guard or eight year old <laughs> talks to a crossing guard. Yeah. Stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter at the GBB podcast, facebook.com slash the GBB podcast for your crossing guard interview. News. <laughs> I'm Justin at 140 Justin C. I'm Jamie at the Roarbots. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Take care. I feel like I'm minimalizing what crossing guards do. No, you're not. Not at all. (laughs) That's perfect. That's awesome. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.